Thank you, worship team. Every month here at Graham, we observe the Lord's Supper communion, but several weeks ago, I felt like it was timely for us to take a service and just go carefully through the passage that instructs us on the Lord's Supper. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we look at that passage, which explains to us the uh, significance and the proper procedure for the Lord's Supper. So I'm excited next week to start a little series on Psalm 23, the shepherd psalm, try to reveal some, uh, maybe some new thoughts from a beloved old shepherd psalm. Well, there was a day in Egypt before God led his people out that they, the God-fearing people gathered in homes, they shed the blood of a lamb, and uh, when God came through in judgment and the death angel came through, he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The Passover event symbolized by the death of the lamb and the shedding of blood and protection from judgment, it formed the foundation for what Jesus did in what we call the Last Supper. In the upper room, the Lord Jesus Christ said, this is my body, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Now, for a, a thousand years of Jewish history, when people remembered the Passover meal, they set a cup on the table that was referred to as the Messiah's cup. They did that in ante anticipation that someday the promised one, Messiah, himself would come and drink of that cup. Most Bible scholars believe that during the Last Supper in the upper room, Jesus, when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, he took that cup and he drank from it himself. In the book of Acts, we see that this communion event, the Lord's Supper, was very precious to the church and much blessed by God. Probably over 10,000 people had become new believers early in the book of Acts. And every week they would meet together. Actually, they would meet together daily initially, and they would eat together. And they would listen to the apostles' teaching. And regularly they would observe what we call communion. The church uh, did it for years every week, every first day of the week that they met together. Some churches still do that today, and it becomes a time in which people share. And rather than being selfishness, uh, selfish, want to prefer others better than themselves. The early church honored God because they shared their food. They had this agape or agape feast, a love feast, in which they would eat together and and poor and rich alike would share. Slaves and free would come and remember the cross of Christ. 
And it was a precious time of help to the believers. And I think it really glorified God. They would have a meal together, then at some point in the meal they would stop. And they'd take the loaf of pita bread and they would rip a piece off. And remember Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. They would take the wine and drink. And remember Jesus said, this is my blood which is shed for you. This is the new covenant, the new agreement in my blood. That's the background of the Lord's Supper. But by the time we come to the specific instructions that we have in 1 Corinthians 11, there had at least in one church developed some problems. Now the Corinthian church was really talented. Paul commended the fact that they had a plethora of spiritual gifts. They did a lot right, but they also had to be corrected for what they were doing wrong in the Lord's Supper. So I call it the crisis of the Corinthian church. I'm reading chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The Apostle Paul was often lavish in his thanksgiving for the various churches, and he commended them for their service and their loyalty to the gospel. But at times he had to rebuke, like the Corinthian church and the Galatian church and some at Philippi, over their selfishness. And here it's almost shocking that in verse 17 we read, it is not for good purposes that you were gathering. They were about themselves, what they could get to eat, what they could get to drink. And uh, Paul has to point out the fact that there were divisions among them. Turn back, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we recognize that in the midst of this talented, gifted church, there were all kinds of divisive issues, particularly people rallying around individual leaders. Now, it's normal. If it was Paul's preaching that blessed you, you appreciate Paul. If it was Apollo's preaching or Peter's preaching or someone else, um, I know who I like to listen to and I know who I don't like to listen to. And I'm right. No, it's a matter of taste. Um, many times, the Christian programs I don't like on TV, it's just a matter of style. It's not a matter of belief. And we can agree to disagree about that. But the Corinthians were lining up in sides over certain leaders. Look here, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Once again, I'm going to say it's understandable that we appreciate those who minister to us. And it's right that we love and soak up in the things that we can learn. But the Corinthians were saying, man, uh, Peter, he's more caring than Paul. I follow Peter. Uh, no, Paulus, he's a better preacher uh, than Peter, Cephas. I follow him or whatever. And, and Paul says, look, it's about Christ. It's about Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians 11, the communion passage, uh, Paul's not shy to mention why God allows factions. He says here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19, that... Um, uh, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So down through the years of church history, there have been those that over time have, have been divisive in the church, but later on it became evident that they didn't really believe in the blood of Christ or the deity of Jesus Christ. Maybe that there was continuing hidden sin that was divisive. I'm not saying, nor have I, or, or am, I, am I even hinting that there has been wrong doctrine here at Graham or immorality or um, dishonesty. Not saying that at all. But in the Corinthian church, the people were vigorous to take sides, and God says, He allows this. For purposes, you know, one of the purposes of a division is so that we can show ourselves mature and not side with people, but with truth. So that we can be patient. So that we can do that, which maybe we don't completely understand, but we're commanded to do in Scripture to keep the unity of the body in the spirit of peace. And in the crisis of the Corinthian church, they were just selfish and that some were coming to get all the food they could because it was being shared. Some were drinking so much that even in that day in which the wine was a very lightly fermented grape juice, uh, they were drinking so much that they were getting drunk. And Paul, and Paul says, am I going to commend you for this? No. I have to tell you that, that this is wrong. So next Paul doesn't just scold them. He gives them positive instructions from God. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. Now, that word covenant could mean agreement or testament in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the bottom line is communion should be about the example of Jesus. We're going to, Lord willing, in a few weeks start a series that we'll probably be in until God gives you your new pastor uh, in the Gospel of Mark. The key verse, and we're going to go verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, the key verse in that is Jesus said, For even I, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. And this passage emphasizes to us that the desire of Jesus is in communion, that it bring us together in remembrance of him. It's important that we do remember what the benefits of the Lord's Supper are, specifically the benefits of what his death provides for us. Not just forgiveness of sin, but imputation to us that is crediting to us Christ's righteousness. <coughs> Excuse me. This uh, communion should remind us that he loves us. <coughs> this isn't be good because it's not Mountain Dew. <coughs> It reminds us of our need to walk in fellowship with him. <coughs> Jesus said, do this until I come again. <coughs> Communion is a reminder that someday in heaven we were going to have a glorified meal called the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast of the Lamb when he comes and makes all things right. Now, I've had a cold all week. I'm confident I'm not. Randy, I got one in my mouth, right? Thank you, brother. If, if I were selling halls, throat drops, I'd say, taste terrible, work good. Today I'd say, taste terrible, work semi-good. Thank you, brother. Um, that's, that's the book of James. So I, I did make sure that this week, having had a cold, I was at the point where I was past being contagious, but I still got a throat thing going. All right, several times Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. And so sometimes people ask me, why don't you believe just what the Bible says, that it literally is the body and the blood of Christ? Well, <clears throat> our Roman Catholic friends believe in a view called transubstantiation, if you like big words, that when communion is served, when a priest properly serves it in what they call the Mass, 
or maybe they use the word Eucharist. Eucharist is a good word. It simply means to give thanks. But in the Mass, our Roman friends would say that it literally, chemically, physically changes to the body, the flesh, and the blood of Christ. I'll give you a reason, you've heard it before in a minute, why we take a symbolic view. But Hebrews says that Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And I think one of the misunderstandings of the Mass is that they're actually teaching that this is a provision for your sin to be forgiven past. You need to take communion next week so that your sins are given again. And that Christ in that theology is actually crucified regularly over and over. But Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ appeared in the underworld once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Martin Luther had the view that Christ is in the bread and in the juice. Um, it's called uh, consubstantiation. That definitely it's not changed chemically to, to be flesh or blood, but that in a very real sense it becomes that to us. That's an understandable view that I, I, I appreciate. But I think what Scripture teaches us when Jesus uses this language is that Christ is symbolically and spiritually present. John Calvin said, The sun remains in heaven, but its warmth, uh, warmth and light are present on earth. So you've heard me say this before, but most Bible-believing people, evangelicals, accept this view that Jesus was speaking figuratively, the symbolic view. And it's because Christ's teaching is permeated with him using symbols for himself. Like he said, I am the bread of life. We don't stop and think, was that rye or is that wheat? Wonder bread? Actually, Wonder Bread would work, wouldn't it? Jesus said, I'm the door. If anyone enters in by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. He said, I'm the vine. I am the way. In that famous verse, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The word way, it's the Greek word hadas. It means a straight path that takes you somewhere, a road. Jesus said, I am the road. I am the straight path that takes you to heaven. It's symbolic language. He said, I'm the good shepherd. Now, probably when Jesus was growing up, the 30 years in his stepfather Joseph's home, he probably with his buddies did some time doing sheep care and shepherding. We'll start talking about that, what really involves next week as we look at Psalm 23. But he really was a carpenter. That word can be translated as a builder. And that's what he grew up doing. He wasn't literally a good shepherd, and yet we understand what he means when he said, I am the good shepherd. God is called the rock among many symbols uh, in the Old Testament. He, he is the rock. Um, if if uh, you ask me about my wife Nancy... I could say to you, here is my wife. You say, wow, she's awfully short. 
three inches tall. Well, okay, obviously this literally is not Nancy, but this is my wife. And we use that kind of language all the time. And I believe our Lord Jesus Christ did as well. Understanding Scripture really requires our comparing Scripture with Scripture, and it takes, it takes wisdom. Understanding Scripture is called the science and the art of hermeneutics. That's not the little niece of Herman Munster. It's trying to apply godly wisdom, comparing passages with passages. Um, I note that here in 1 Corinthians 11, probably one of the most difficult passages in the Bible is the first half of this chapter that talks about head coverings. It's right in that category of 1 Corinthians 15 that says, why are people baptized for the dead? Now, we're not going to get off into that controversy, but context always is the key to help us understand what is met, uh, meant. Um, you know, I've, I've been here 16 months, I think, or so. No one has ever greeted me with a holy kiss. Thank you for that, by the way. The holy kiss in the New Testament, which is commanded four times, New Testament, uh, was a same-sex greeting. It was a kiss on the lips, still practiced in some Greek churches today. And you say, so why, Jim, do we shake hands instead of take that verse literally? Why do our Oriental brothers and sisters bow? Why during COVID did we bump elbows or whatever? Well, there, there's biblical work to do in the wisdom of understanding what is eternal and what is cultural, what is unchanging. Now, that's uh, just to mention the fact that if we're going to interpret Scripture, like Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, we must take it on the basis of comparing Scripture and we must have godly wisdom in that. The final section in this preparation for communion that God had Paul write to the church is a series of warnings. Paul was lavish in his praise, but he was fearless in his warnings when people were misbehaving because he cared. Verse 27, I began, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. So here were people that were coming not only with unconfessed sin, but selfish motives to be first in the shared eating and drinking. 
the beautiful Old King James translation has led many to fear unnecessarily of taking communion because it says you can take it unworthily. I've told you before of the sensitive pastor who saw a godly lady in his church that month after month would let communion pass, and he knew that she feared God and had been converted by the grace of God. As she started to let communion pass again, he went to her and she said, oh, I'm not worthy. He said, you are correct. You are not worthy. He makes us worthy. And so what's it mean to eat in a worthy manner? To recognize that Christ is our righteousness. What it means to eat in an unworthy manner is not to care about the blood of Christ and that the solution is we confess and he is faithful and just to forgive. And Paul talks here about the consequences of disobedience and that some were sick and some had actually died because they were dismissing the fear of the Lord by being very casual and carnal about Christian living and specifically the Lord's Supper. I've been to churches that are unusually healthy and I think it's a result of their deep fear of the Lord. I've been to churches that have a lot of history of health problems and I wonder sometimes if it's not chastening, judgment, spanking from the Lord. You see, God loves us too much to let us go on in carnality if we are His son or we are His daughter but that he will want to get our attention. And in some cases, some people in Corinth had actually died. I know two men that dissed the Lord and hurt the church of Christ, and I believe I saw God take their lives. That's pretty serious stuff, but 1 Corinthians says that those who hurt the church of God, God will deal with. He'll take them out. So, the Bible has a variety of reasons for sickness and for suffering. Not only in general that we live in a sinful world, there were no germs in the Garden of Eden, but um, number one might be chastisement or child training. So here it is that God says in Hebrews that every son and daughter of his at some point experiences the Lord's discipline his chastisement, child training, that we might be serious about the Christian life. Sin sometimes results in sickness and suffering. Physical neglect, of course. Persecution. Sometimes the only way that we can learn lessons to help others is being mistreated by some ourselves. And First Corinthians or Second Corinthians says, we comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received from the Lord. Ministry training. We learn how to help others by being more sensitive sometimes through our trials and our frailties and sicknesses. Some illness, Jesus said, is to the glory of God. They said, who, 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 who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it his, him or his parents? No, but this, this is uh, an illness that will result in glory to God. Ultimately, some sicknesses are unto death. I've not had very good health the last couple of years. I've been sort of pitiful. And uh, I carry halls with me all the time. And um, I've had to go over this list and say, Lord, 
Why? Where am I if, if, if I'm on this list? And I would encourage each of us to do this as well. Paul toward the Corinthians. Some of you are sickly and some have even died because of misbehavior in the Lord's Supper. Now, what does it mean to judge ourselves? This is not new to you. Unless you're a brand new believer, and I know we have some brand new believers here at Graham. Uh, had one here this, this morning. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now the context is, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we agree with God, confess our sins, he is faithful because God is faithful. He's not fickle. He's faithful. And he's just because Christ died to purchase forgiveness of our sins. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? Is, is it 90%? How about 95? How about 99? You say, but Jim, I've confessed that sin 97,000 times. Yeah, I'm with you. But he is faithful and he is just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. The Old Testament equivalent of this would be whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Well, he talks here in closing about properly taking communion. Take your time. Wait for one another. Don't be selfish. And do it with proper motives. In remembrance of me. John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley wrote wonderful hymns. They were the founders of the, the Methodist church. And Charles Wesley wrote, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued amazing love how can it be that thou my god shouldst die for me let's bow our hearts before the lord brother randy can i ask you to uh, let the worship team know that we're done a minute early they're probably out there oh actually okay i see worship team people here my bad okay let's pray I think, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, a wonder of the world, a Baptist preacher done early. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord. Father, we thank you for the death of Christ. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for the symbolism of communion to remind us that it's all about you and the benefits of your death and your forgiving blood. Now, Father, help us to be serious. 
and sincere in our Christian living. Help us to be willing to be transparent with you. Lord, in these quiet moments, would you speak to our heart? Maybe some of us this week need to send out an email and say, I'm sorry. Some of us may have to pick up the phone and make a call and say, I didn't understand, I, I jumped to judgment, I'm sorry. But Lord, whatever you'd have us do, help us to do it. And know the benefits of communion in a worthy manner. Now, Father, in this quiet moment, speak to our hearts, please, we ask. Father, we look back and we say thank you for the death of Christ. We look in and we say thank you for forgiveness of sins by the blood. We look forward to heaven and say thank you for perfection that's coming. And we ask, Father, that you would be honored in this, our Lord's Supper, in Jesus' name. Amen.